I read Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad book, and it completely, completely changed my life. It made me realize that I didn't have to pursue a very mundane, typical career, a career that my father, my mother would have loved me to, to have. But there was something else. I could actually forge my own path and I could create something for myself. Hello, hello. Welcome to How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. I'm Tunde and today we have on the show the general partner and co-founder at Cornerstone VC, which, as the name suggests, is a venture capital fund. Cornerstone is the largest black-led, diverse, focused investment fund with $25 million in the fund, and they look to invest in black-led startup businesses. In this episode, you'll hear how the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad transformed his outlook on life, on why entrepreneurs should avoid opening consumer businesses, and how he found an unlikely role model in the 1990s comedy Desmond's. See you on the other side. So Edwin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tunde. It's a, it's a real pleasure, real pleasure to join you and uh, looking forward to speaking a bit more about the journey. Indeed, indeed. I've, uh, it's been a, a, quite a, a few weeks to get you on the show, but <laughs> we have finally got you on the show. So, you know, much appreciation for, for that. How was your day, by the way? I mean, it's a Thursday at the time of recording. Was it a particularly productive day? Yeah, no, it's been a great day. I've had a good couple of founder meetings, well, a good couple of exciting opportunities that, yeah, hoping to, to progress to the next stages. And I do want to say very quickly, I do commend you for your persistence on getting me on this line because <laughs> you, you did extremely well, extremely well. Well, you're clearly a busy man, so that's, that's the reason. <laughs> a man in demand, which is always a good sign. Okay, well, let, let's go right back to the start, as we always do on this show, right back to the very beginning. So where, where, did you, where did you grow up or where were you born? Goodness me. Okay, so right from the beginning. So look, I, I grew up in South London. So, I mean, South London is a very big space, but um, I grew up on the outskirts of Mitcham. And if you know it, it's in between Tootin and Collierswood. And I, I grew up, to Ghanaian parents who migrated to the UK during the late 70s, early 80s. And my mother gave up her administrative career to become a stay-at-home mum. And my dad, who had an, she's always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spark, um, I guess for stability reasons, when he became a father of four in the early 90s, he turned to like blue collared work, working for the post office. Um, but he's, you know, I, I think when I think about my family and I think about my upbringing, I think about, you know, my formative years, my early years, I do see it as being pretty normal. I mean, you know, sometimes you might hear about, you know, rags to riches stories, sensationalizing what may have happened to them in the past, et cetera, et cetera. But I think I've, I had a relatively normal 
yeah, relatively normal upbringing, relatively normal background. Okay. I mean, you mentioned there that you've, you're one of four. So I know Rodney is um, your elder brother. Where did the other two come? Are they after you or before you? After me. So I've got two younger sisters, um, but I also have a, an, another elder brother um, from my dad's side. And he's great influence, great inspiration to, to me and, and to the rest of our family. And we've always, I mean, we don't tend to call him our half-brother. For us, he's just one of us, basically. I see. So being the middle brother... Uh, or the middle child. I mean, sometimes that person can get lost. How was it for you? Did you did you feel that you had a role in your in your family or throughout, or was it was it, <laughs> was, it was it difficult getting the attention at times? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think I think there's definitely something that needs to be just deconstructed, especially around you know middle child syndrome, the trials and tribulations that people like me must go through trying to fight for attention, trying to win the, the love of your, of your parents, especially when you have, you know, a really fantastic, high-performing brother. And Rodney, my brother, he, he's always been, you know, an A-star student. So trying to, trying to show my parents that I was also, I guess, credible, I think that, that was definitely part of, part of the struggle. Yeah. It's it's interesting you say that actually you know the kind of rivalry in in families I mean just as a bit of a an aside I went to the Black Business Show about two three weeks ago on the media day and uh, somebody called it's not Rio Ferdinand it's his brother Anton Ferdinand yeah yeah he was speaking there and he talked about the similar issues you know on one hand looking up to your brother for all of the achievements that he's had and obviously Rio's you know, had a fantastic career both on the football side and then on the media side. But then he said it was also quite challenging trying to follow his leads, you know, not feeling that you're quite sort of kind of match up to your your elder brother's achievements as well. Uh, and it can be quite a big burden within the family. So I, I don't know if you've had any of those kind of similar issues or hasn't it, was it not as bad as as, as he had it? I think when I when I really reflect on... I guess the journey, I think having, you know, a role model in my brother gave me that incentive to, and that motivation to work towards, to be a better version of myself. Um, So I've never really seen it as a rivalry. I've always seen it as a, as a benchmark, as, you know, what does good look like and how do I get there I think I've always used my brother in that in that type of way um and you know my my family when I think about the successes from my family from my siblings I mean they're all doing extremely well in their own rights in their own careers and I think we've all really motivated each other um so I, I don't think it's ever really been malicious it's always been yeah it's always it's always come from a good place like from a place of love and admiration. Okay, that's good to hear. Good to hear. And uh, you, you mentioned that you, you feel that you've had a kind of normal upbringing. I mean, how, how was school for you? Well, did you have a happy uh, experience at, at primary school and secondary school, or was it? Were there any sort of challenges at, at during that time? Um, so primary school was fine. I mean, 
can't really remember too much if I if I'm being completely honest. Um, secondary school. So I, I went to a a grammar school, and it was an exam entry school called Gravely, uh, based in Wandsworth. And when I think about my experience there, I think my favorite teacher, I think I came into contact with my favorite teacher that I've ever had. Um, and her name was Miss Mannion. And she was my biology teacher. And she taught double science. And she really helped me to stretch my my thinking capacity, especially when it came to the human body, the anatomy. And for me, being this relatively quiet, quite shy, quite shy, but had a bit of a mischievous side, learning about the body, learning about, you know, the capabilities of, of a human, you know, the intricacies of, you know, your skeletal system, your muscular system, I don't know what it was, but it just really unlocked this creativity um, for me. And when I originally started my secondary school, I started in the middle band, you know, following my exam. Um, And I don't know what it was, but I had this feeling that I, I wasn't placed in the right area. I felt like I had more potential. And I felt like this teacher, Miss Mannion, she really helped to unlock that potential that I had within me. And, you know, I just remember doing some of our exams, some of the modules, and, you know, the exams would be out of 30. And I would essentially ace the exam. So I'd get like 29 out of 30 or 30 out of 30. And then she really pushed me like really pushed me and the other teachers and the faculty to to move me up and to push me up and bump me up uh, a class. So, you know, there, there was a bit of a, a scoring system in our school. So you were either in lower, middle, upper and uh, higher, I think it was. And I was in middle when I first started and then following, you know, essentially acing, um, with the support of my my teacher, my biology teacher, I was able to to be moved up and bumped up to to uh, to the upper class. And I think I think she really opened my eyes up to to what was possible, and that you know there was more to me intellectually than I originally thought. Yeah. No, I mean it's come up so many times in these in these interviews the the importance of teachers early on in in, in the school years. So yeah, just another another example of how important they are. You touched on the fact that you were quite mischievous at times. I mean, h- how did that come out during your secondary school? Could you give us a, a couple of examples, maybe, of your more mischievous, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, events, <laughs> events that went on? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I've, I've always I've always been someone who has thought he was funny, <laughs> um, and and. I, I think um, I've, I've always been a little bit of a, I wouldn't say necessarily mucked about in class, but I definitely, you know, joked about and pushed on some of the boundaries. Um, and I think, again, that was mainly because of where where I was, you know, because I was in middle band, I, I didn't think I was being stretched enough. 
I didn't think I was working to my true potential. And as a result, I would use that as a way of not essentially not lashing out, but finding other ways to amuse myself when, you know, bored in class. I see. I see. Now, a little birdie tells me that when you were younger, you and Rodney, who is your elder brother by one year, I believe, mm-hmm. your mum used to dress you up as twins. Is that is that correct? <laughs> that, that is correct, yeah. <laughs> um, and <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, I actually, well, myself, myself and my wife, I think we started to do exactly the same to our speakers. Okay. <laughs> Which is, I think they, they will certainly hate us for it <laughs> some, sometime in the future. But I mean, I think it looks really cute. I mean, at the time when I wore the same t-shirt and shorts as my brother, I hated it. And, you know, I despised, you know, not being unique. I can see now why my mother chose to do it. It's just simpler. It's simpler to go into a store and buy the same of each, just slightly different sizes and, and just throw them on. Yeah. No, it, it's still a thing today. It's still very popular, isn't it? Yeah. During, during this time at school, secondary school in particular, did you have any inklings about what you wanted to do as a career? I mean, you mentioned about your teacher pushing you because I, I would have thought that maybe that would have encouraged you to study sciences at, at university. But I, I mean, I'm not sure what you went on to, to study at uni. No, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think for the love of biology, for the love of, of science in the main, through my interactions with, you know, my favorite teacher, um, that definitely inspired me to go down that, that route. I was a, a bit of an athlete when I was younger. I used to really enjoy, you know, athletics, playing football. Um, and I guess the combination of my love for sport and, you know, sciences, I wanted to somehow fit them together to do, to do something that I could, you know, pursue in my career. So I quickly started moving towards, you know, physical education. Um, I started looking at physiotherapy, um, re- rehabilitation. Um, and then, you know, from secondary school into college and then university, that was definitely an area of focus, a space. Um, but then I think what I found pretty quickly is that it was extremely difficult, extremely difficult to get into that career. If you were not a, a footballer, you were not part of the academy, not part of you know, the footballing family, as it were, then being able to penetrate into that to that space was extremely, extremely difficult. And I, I, re- I remember thinking about how persistent and how determined I, I was to, to crack it and get into that, into that arena. I spent time writing emails and letters. <laughs> Sounds crazy now, but letters and emails to every physiotherapist in every football club or I think the first three divisions, so from the Premier League and, and below, and I only received one response back and it was a rejection. Shocking. So that's like yeah. 60, 60 football clubs. Exactly. One reply. That is 
very bad. Yeah, and and I think uh, you know after that I, I just realised you know as as determined as persistent as I am, I just thought it would be almost impossible for me to to get into this area. So I started to look further afield. I see. And how, obviously, coming from a, a Ghanaian background, how did your parents take to you wanting to go down that route? Yeah, I mean, I guess be, being a, a son of African parents, they always want to push you into core subjects, core areas such as, you know, to become a lawyer, to become a doctor, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I just don't think that was ever ever going to be for me. Um, it just it just really wasn't my my area of focus at all. And I think my parents realized quite quickly when I was younger that that just wouldn't be my journey. Okay. So what did you go on to study and what uni did you go to? Yeah, so I, I went to Middlesex University. I studied again as I as I mentioned, well sports science with psychology. I did an elective um, course in business studies as well. And I guess even though I I did face some struggles um, trying to break into or or trying to become a physiotherapist, I still wanted to see if it would be possible if I could maybe work in either the private or national health service. Um, However, after spending one term focusing on business studies and doing that elective course, it completely opened my eyes up to what could be possible. Um, and I, I always remember in my first year at, at university, I don't know if I really want to reveal this because I, I guess in some respects, some people would say, well, this you doing this particular thing derailed you from education, from going down that academic route. But I read Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, and it completely, completely changed my life. It made me realize that I didn't have to pursue, you know, a very mundane, typical um, career a career that my father, my mother would have loved me to, to have. Um, but there was something else. I could actually forge my own path and I could create something for myself um, and be, you know, a, a leader and essentially direct my own ship. I see. So what sort of becoming a parent is that you are, or you were a bit of a, a free spirit. Is that a fair thing to say? Or No, I would, I would agree with that. I think if, if I think about the personalities within my family, I would say most people would say that I, yeah, I, I, I would be the free spirit with it. Yeah, the free spirit between us. Okay. So my, my, my radar is still working, at least sometimes. That's good. <laughs> now, what, what I want to know is how do you make the transition from initially studying physical education with a sort of business on the side to uh, graduating and then becoming a private banker. How did that happen? So I, I will talk to you about, I guess, more of the anecdotes rather than the journey. And I think I, I, I remember, I vividly remember watching 
the long-standing um, show that was on Channel 4 at the time called Desmond's. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and, and watching that and watching uh, Michael, I think, who was the son, who was a, he was either a businessman or a banker and he, you know, every day he would wear a suit and he would have a briefcase and just watching him and, and having that as a role model and something to look at and to look to uh, really did inspire me. Um, and I think off the back of, you know, watching the Desmonds and, um, you know, receiving multiple rejections, trying to break into the physiotherapy space and, you know, following reading The Rich Dad Poor Dad, I thought, you know, why not try and see if there's another area that I could focus my time and energy in. So I started to, to look at opportunities in financial services, um, started speaking to a couple of recruiters and, you know, they thought because of my personable skills um, and the fact that, you know, I was, um, I had a, a keen interest in, in finance, a keen interest in um, financial services that they thought maybe getting into, into banking, you know, in the administrative roles or in a junior role could be a good step. Um, and yes, I, I, I did that and I, I quickly, quickly got into a, a fantastic bank, um, working for, for Coots, a bank for the rich and famous. Um, and I ended up spending many, many years, many years, almost institutionalized um, <laughs> at that bank. But it was, yeah, it was, it was a great time. Yeah. But isn't that interesting what you said about Desmond's? I mean, I guess back then, I don't know if it was the eighties or nineties, but there were very few role models, weren't there? I guess in many ways, like for, for our community. So I guess you had to find them where they, wherever they were. So if you cast your mind back to that era, I mean, apart from that guy in Desmond's, um, who else were your role models of, of that time, do you think? It's a great question. And I, I really wanted to give you a list of a number of role models that I had. But honestly, when I think about it, the only real role models that come to mind were my father. And my father, who, you know, as I said at the, at the beginning, had this entrepreneurial spirit. And I remember he used to tell me when I was a little boy that, you know, when he was growing up, when he was in his teens, when he migrated across to the UK, that he spent time driving his car um, through Europe, going to either Amsterdam or to Germany to you know, to, to sell, whether it be, you know, commodities or, or sell items um, throughout Europe. And I think him explaining to me that he could do that and he did that when he was younger, especially being someone that just came from Africa, from Ghana to the UK. And he felt that he had, I guess, the flexibility and he was empowered to do that. I think that was so inspiring to hear. I mean, you know, he didn't have a British education, although he had a great education in, in Ghana. Um, he didn't have many of the luxuries that we have today. 
And yet still, he still felt empowered enough to come over to this country and then start up his own escapades and and create his own business and, and start selling into into national markets. I mean, it's when I when I think about it, I think you know if he could do that, why why can't I do anything similar? Yeah, no, he sounds like a, a very inspirational guy. So you've joined Coots. I think it was in two thousand and seven. How different was your experience at Coots and the job that you took on there? How how different was it to what they sold at the time? Did it match your expectations, or was it? Did you find it hard initially to kind of get into the swing of things there? Yeah, I think I think originally, at the very beginning, because I was essentially doing a clerical role, I had this big picture in my head that I would be speaking to the rich and famous and helping them and supporting them with their growth ambitions, their financial growth ambitions. However, really, my day-to-day job was key in a couple of digits onto a computer screen. So there was definitely a disconnect between, you know, originally when I used to walk past the Strand, you know, the 440 Strand, and I used to look into this glass building and all of this mystery uh, and all of this wealth that that used to be so alluring to me at the very beginning. I guess it it quickly faded when... (laughs) when you're, you're hit with the realities of just being an administrative um, person in the bank. Um, however, that, that quickly changed because I started to move up the ranks. So I moved away from admin, started moving towards, you know, relationship managing, originally becoming an assistant first, um, supporting bankers, in various departments, whether it be sport and entertainment or the landowners um, department. Um, And then I finally got my break where I became an international banker um, supporting, you know, high net worth individuals and SMEs across Europe, UK and Americas. And it was such a fulfilling, such a fulfilling role. Um, I mean, it was a role that had objectives, financial objectives. You had to bring in a certain amount of um, new business, a certain amount of assets under management. Um, But I think what I really enjoyed about the role was meeting new people that come from different um, walks of life, uh, different backgrounds, and really trying to find the similarities but then also learn what some of the differences are and how I could benefit from understanding some of the differences and how I could apply them to my life. So so one thing that I learned really quickly when working for Coots is that, you know, the wealthy don't rely on just one one income. They rely on several sources of income. And, you know, it, it was so alien to me when I was younger that, you could receive money from different <laughs> different avenues. It it just wasn't something I was I grew up with. You know, my 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 stay at home mum not working. My father had essentially one role for multiple years. It just was alien to me. 
Um, so that was something that I learned that I've definitely applied uh, to my life and something that I'll definitely teach my my daughters that I'm teaching my daughters now. Yeah. Yeah, you're painting the, the job at uh, Coots to be really exciting, actually. I'm, I'm imagining there's there's lots of travel involved as well, as, you, as a lot of your clients were international. Were there particular locations that you were covering, like Africa? Was it North America? Was it just all over? No, so it was it was Europe and UK, Europe and America. Okay. So I, I mean, I can talk a, a bit about, you know, the different types of clients. So I, I would either have, essentially, it would be entertainers. And when I say entertainers, I mean either directors, casting directors, TV directors, TV producers, actors, actresses um, that have been in, you know, Hollywood films, blockbusters, or I would look after private equity firms or VCs, like general partners of a VC, a VC fund. I looked after a couple of VCs, actually, some in Germany, some in the UK. So yeah, it was it was a, a great mixture. So you needed to know a lot about everything, and to be able to have great conversations with, you know, all different levels, um, all different types of people. So as this was going on, uh, your brother Rodney had uh, set up um, Cornerstone Partners. I think it was back in two thousand and sixteen. When, when did it become clear or evident that, you know, working together could, could be an option for, for both of you? It's so strange because when we were growing up, and as I said, I, I mean, there wasn't essentially, a, there wasn't a rivalry, no. The thought of working together was just something that just completely escaped us both. I just didn't see it on the horizon at all. I mean, we're just, we're different people at the end of the day. I mean, if you spoke to Rodney, you know, you would get a different vibe from Rodney than you would get from me. And I mean, I think the only area of focus, the only area that we have both landed on, which we both enjoy and we both have a common ground on, is investing and using our capital or capital that we've been given to back founders that look like you and I. Um, I think when, when we were growing up, trying to find that role model was difficult. So the fact that we now have the opportunity to try and help create some of those role models for the younger generations is such a fulfilling, like such a fulfilling vocation. And I was going to ask you, actually, how is it actually working with a sibling? particularly one who's a bit older than you, because I know sometimes in West African families in particular, it can be quite hierarchical at times um, with the, you know, the seniority and so forth. So how is it on a day-to-day basis working with a sibling? Oh, it's, I mean, it has its challenges yeah. um, because, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you have to remember that, you know, you're working in a professional capacity. You're not, <laughs> you're not having a chat with your brother at home. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think having those clear boundaries between this is how we operate when we work, when we work together 
And this is how we operate when we're more informal and we're out with family or we're just out relaxing. So I, I think trying to find that balance was difficult at the beginning, but it's, def- it's definitely improved. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like you were still enjoying life at Coots. You've been working there for well over 10 years, nearly 15 years, I think. What was it that Rodney said to you that convinced you to go over at co-found Cornerstone VC? So I think every, every partner, every co-founder of Cornerstone Partners would give you a different story as to why they joined and why they decided to, to begin this venture. And, and I think for me, at the time, you know, as I said, I was working at Coots, great job, you know, paying the bills. But at the time, you know, recently married, my first daughter was on the way. Um, and on, although it was a, a good career, I did feel like something was missing. And I don't know if it was a midlife crisis or if I wanted something more, you know, meaningful in my life. I wanted to do something more with my time. So on the side of Coots, myself, my brother Rodney, uh, my good friends, Will, Stephen, Jude and Peter, we all went to um, East London to what was Levi Roots's restaurant, but I think it subsequently closed. Um, but we we sat down, we had a meal, started you know breaking bread, talking about what was happening in our lives, and then we started discussing pooling our money together to do something greater. Um, and it was mainly inspired for me. It was mainly inspired by, you know, things that were happening outside of our control to our community. So I think at the time I was watching on the news, the likes of Tamir Rice and what happened to him and you know how he was murdered. And I just felt this feeling of being so powerless and not being able to, not being able to do anything of substance to, to help support him, those that have felt challenged by what had happened. Um, and this was long before what happened to George Floyd. I think it made me realize that what was lacking in our community is that we didn't have long-standing, you know, credible institutions that were created to, you know, support and build up our community. It, it just, for me, when I think about it, I just, there was nothing that I could compare it to. Um, and yeah, we, I, we wanted to start something that could emulate that and emulate what we have already seen in other communities where they've come together, they've pulled their money together to do you know, a greater good. And, and that's, that's what we hope to, to achieve. Now, I guess for any startup, it can be quite a uh, scary time, particularly if you're leaving a sort of stable job with stable salary coming in every month. So how how, how was it for you in particular? I mean, I know you had your brother there, but you, you mentioned you were, you know, your family was growing. How scary was that? Was that the first couple of years at Cornerstone? 
tough. It's yeah. super, super, super tough. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure my wife would say, what on earth were you thinking? <laughs> you know, it was a, definitely a leap of faith. Um, definitely a leap of faith when, when we started this venture. Um, and, you know, financially it was difficult. Again, as I, as I said, we started off where we were moonlighting essentially at Cornerstone Partners. So working in our day-to-day jobs, but doing, you know, all of the Cornerstone Partners activity at the side of our desk, not being paid for, for the work, but knowing that there was a bigger, definitely, a, a, you know, something far bigger that we were trying to affect. And yeah, financially it was difficult, but we made it work. We made it work. I mean, was your wife, was she working at the time or were you, were you just kind of relying on your, your salary? Because I guess that would make it even tougher if it was just kind of one salary coming in. No, she, she, she was definitely working at the time. And, I, oh, okay. and the reason why I remember that really well is because she, not only does she work for the NHS as a therapist, essentially, she also was an actress and... Fortunately for us, during that period, she did a couple of gigs, did a couple of commercials that pay extremely well. And I think, you know, some of that capital definitely helped, especially as we, you know, started spending time fundraising for, for the fund. Because I, I left Coots to do that. And there was a period of 18 months almost 20, no, I think almost 24 months of no salary, going out, you know, cap in hand, speaking to LPs about, you know, investing in our fund. Um, And that was extremely difficult. But with the support of my wife, bringing some extra cash into, into the household, yeah, that definitely helped. It's so interesting, isn't it? How important your partner is um, I was listening to Gordon Ramsay on, uh, I think it was Stephen Bartlett's podcast, and he was talking about he had a certain level of success early on in his career, but then he, I think he wanted to, to expand and open up a few more restaurants or, so, or something like that. And he basically had to go to his wife, I, I want to put up the house and remortgage it so that I can release some capital to put down for the business. And these kind of stories come up time and time again, having to go to your partner. And basically, as you say, asking them to take a leap of faith. So that, you know, that, those relationships need to be pretty, uh, need to be pretty tight um, for it to work, I guess. Uh, and I guess in some cases, I mean, obviously it worked out for you, worked out for Gordon Ramsay, obviously, but I guess in some cases it doesn't work out. And it, it just makes you wonder how that impacts on the relationship. No, absolutely. And, and I think, and when I reflect on that period, it reminds me that I definitely had a level of, privilege that I think sometimes people that look like you and I don't talk about because if if I didn't have that privilege if I didn't have that income source from my wife if I didn't have that foundation of my my family um, those around me working with my family um, essentially I wouldn't have felt capable of being able to do it like it, it just wouldn't have been achievable at all. So no, I, I completely agree. I think 
it's often discounted how important that your the team around you, the support that you have around you, whether it be just you know um, mentorship, advice, financial. You know, I, I definitely would not be here if it wasn't for all of that support that I had around me, my family too. Um, and yeah, I think that's definitely something that I would, I really want to shine a light on because yeah, I, I'm half the man I am today I, and I'm topped up by all of those um, interactions, all of those, all of the love and support that I received from, from friends and family. So you take the leap of faith, you join your brother uh, and eventually um, move into Cornerstone VC. Now, for those that don't know Cornerstone VC, could you give us a brief kind of summary of, of what you guys do and how, how special you are? Because I don't think there's many other VCs, venture capital firms that do what you're doing. Is, is, that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that statement, although it is it's certainly growing. To, to, to summarize what we do, I mean, or summarize who we are, Cornerstone VC is a, a people-first investment firm um, that backs pre-Series A, so early-stage pre-seed seed businesses that are led by diverse teams. When I say diverse teams, think of an investment firm that has a gender and ethnicity investment lens. So our focus is on backing female founders who are underrepresented, you know, ethnically diverse founders who are, again, are underrepresented. And I think the reason why we do what we do, it's not a, a pity parade. It's not that at all. I think, and this is going back to my you know, my banking days, as an investor, one thing that you would always try and do is you would try and uncover, try and unlock, I guess, some sort of breakdown or a disconnect in a, in a market, in a private market. And by doing that, you can identify levels of arbitrage so I think looking at diversity as an asset class, I think we're doing the same thing. I think founders that come from those marginalized groups, and I say that with inverted commas, um, they are, they're overlooked. And because they're overlooked, there is just this big pot, I see, of opportunity of all of these credible founders just because, you know, some of these other VC funds might not have um, access to founders that come from those particular groups or might not have the networks, rich enough networks where those types of founders would be found, that they don't see them and they don't back them. But I'm fortunate enough to say that I have an affinity bias and my affinity bias is looking at founders or identifying founders that look like you and I um, that are also competent, um, credible, have worked in high tech, big growth tech firms. 
Um, they're either first generation or second generation immigrants and they have points to prove. And, you know, they're technically competent. They have um, sales focused backgrounds um, and they're trying to create, they want to create the next unicorn. And I, I, I really do think that, you know, what we're doing at Cornerstone is that we're really shining a light on what it means to create diverse teams, what it means to create, you know, exceptional founders, irrespective of where they come from, what they look like. Um, and we're here to, to back them and to, to support them. It's so true. It's so true. I, I remember speaking to Claudine Adeyemi from Early Bird. She did uh, one of these interviews a few months ago. Do you know Claudine? By the I way? do. I actually you know do. her very well. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, she was saying during the interview that I think during the early years of setting up her original business, not Early Bird, but the one kind of preceding that, she took the view that spending time on the circuit trying to raise investments was, was almost a bit of a waste of time because she kind of did the did the stats and she worked out it probably she probably wasn't going to get the funds because number one she was black number two she was female so she knew statistically that she was going to fail no no matter how good her pitch was she wasn't going to get the funds so i mean i was always going to say to you what if people were in you know if other people today were in Claudine's shoes what could they do to i guess improve their chances of getting the funding i know you've mentioned like for your fund they need to have maybe, you know, sales backgrounds, tech backgrounds. But in terms of more generic things, what can people do on a more general basis to increase their chances of getting funding? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great topic. And it's a topic that we spend a lot of time speaking about at Cornerstone. We're, we're really focused on the types of businesses that, that founders that come from black and diverse backgrounds build. Historically, black founders tend to build consumer-based, consumer-facing businesses. And unfortunately, those types of businesses struggle, especially during, you know, economically uncertain times, inflationary environment. They struggle to get off the ground, let alone raise, you know, external capital. So I, I think if, if we could educate and we're trying to educate more founders to create businesses that are more scalable, businesses that leverage uh, technology, that digitize businesses because digitized businesses, the ability to scale them, the ability to turn them into a global businesses, unicorn businesses, is far higher than it is to try and um, scale a, a B2C business um, because of how much time, how labor-intensive it is for, for B2Cs to, to get off the ground, how much capital is required. And even then, there are not, as many funds that look at consumer-facing businesses. So you're already stuck with that obstacle, let alone you know, another obstacle because you, you might not necessarily look like members in, in the investment team of that said VC fund that you're speaking to, uh, which creates another barrier. 
So I, I think for me, I mean, trying to teach and educate founders around the types of businesses that are more VC backable uh, is definitely something that we are we are trying to do. Okay, it's really good to hear. Now, even if we do end up getting the funding, and when I say we, I mean, you know, people in the black community, I read somewhere that we might be good at starting businesses, but we're not so good at scaling them. Would you agree with that? And if so, why Why do you think that is? Mm, yeah, I, I don't think I agree. Okay. I, I don't think I agree with the statement, especially thinking about businesses that I've already backed and supported. I think that that type of statement is is, um, is normally like a, a lazy type of view. You know, there, there are businesses that we've backed that, you know, are approaching Series B, Series C territory. You know, there is the likes of Marshmallow, um, that's a, a unicorn, you know, fintech and tech business. It's it's possible. It's happened. It, it it continues to happen, and so I. It's not a statement I agree with. Yeah, and I. I mean, I'm familiar with Plus Heat. I don't know if you're still an investor of them, but um, I was I was a personal customer of uh, Plus Heat. Um, so I'm familiar with one or two of your your businesses that you've invested in over over the years. Just as an aside, I mean, I was just wondering what does the typical day of a VC? What you know. There's obviously lots of meeting new potential uh, founders, but aside from that, how else do you fill your days? Goodness. It, I mean, it's a great question. It's a great question to ask to a emerging fund or a startup fund, as we like to call ourselves, because, because we're a startup fund, we spend a lot of our time doing lots of, basically spinning lots of different plates whether it be, you know, hiring interns, supporting junior members of staff, apprentices. Um, as you say, our bread and butter is to um, originate, speak to founders, meet founders, go to events, um, monitor our existing portfolio, provide support, value add to our existing portfolio as well. Um, help them to raise additional capital, help them to hire key personnel for their team and keep our business operating. <laughs> it's a, it's a full on, I think, you know, one thing I would say about VC is that it's, it's glamorized. It is definitely glamorized. Um, but the real day to day job of a VC, especially a startup VC, is not it's not an easy it's not an easy one not for the faint-hearted at all yeah i mean for those at home cornerstone vc i think it's it, you still have a 25 million pound fund is that is that correct 25 million dollar fund that's oh, correct dollar okay great stuff so what's on the horizon next for cornerstone vc i know you've recently hired the first female partner uh ellie yes ella wells bonner yeah so what, what's uh, next on the horizon? Are, will you be looking to maybe increase the size of the fund at, at some point or what other things are on the horizon for, your, for the company? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for, for us, it's, it's building out our portfolio, um, backing the best businesses, um, showing the world and our trusted limited partners, our investors, 
that there is real alpha in backing diverse founders um, that are addressing global issues. I, I think once we're able to do that and prove that out, then we have every opportunity to build and and to to build on the you know our, our success. Um, I think our our next goal is to certainly raise subsequent funds. We don't see ourselves as just one fund. We see ourselves as as a firm. And one day I would love to have a have a conversation with you Tunde in the future where I'm speaking to you about our fourth or fifth fund where we have a hundred million AUM. And I can talk to you about all of the successes that we've been able to achieve. I think for us it's it's key to show show the community that that it can be done, and um, yeah, hopefully we're we're well placed to do that. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Now you said to me before you came on to to the show that you've done you've done a lot of reflecting today. So my, my final question is, you know, seeing that you've done this reflecting, how much of your personal success do you think is down to either luck, hard work? or talent? If you had to choose one of those three, what would you uh, say is, has been most responsible for your for your success to date? Again, I mean, I'm, I'm loving the questions, today. <laughs> this is another hot topic in the office. Okay. And, and the debate, the debate is always around luck versus hard work. Um, and I think for me, I would say it's de- it's definitely been hard work, but that hard work, I've been motivated to work hard, not only because of the objective that I'm trying to achieve, but because of the faith that's been given to me by my family, my friends, and the, the ecosystem, the wider community. So I work harder to to show everyone that that we can do this and it's possible. Um, so yeah, I, I think hard work is 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 underrated. I think hard work is what you need to to get you to get you anywhere. Great way to end the podcast, um, Edwin. As you say, let's get you back on in a couple of years when when you set up a few more funds, bigger funds, uh, and uh, give everybody an update then. But uh, for now, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Cindy. It's been a pleasure. Big thanks to Edwin there. Really enjoyable discussion. The world of high finance, I think, can sometimes seem a little sort of mysterious, I guess, and he certainly helped to demystify it. Before each interview that I do, actually, with people, I do, you know, do a bit of research. There's usually quite a lot that's available online. I'm, you know, I'm able to to gather quite a, a lot of information in readiness for the interview. But with Edwin, not much at all. So I'm glad that we were able to kind of unpeel the layers as we went through the interview. How many of you actually have multiple streams of income as he talked about during the interview? Be keen to, to find out. Please let me know. Hit us up on the socials at How I Crushed It or send us an email to howicrushedit at gmail.com and catch you on the next show. <laughs>